Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jennifer White, and I am here with Ellen Trackman. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. Um, So our guest, when we did our pre-conversation, we had talked about that we really wanted to, like, display or talk about all of her animals and her basically zoo worth of animals and we got so distracted by the entire conversation we didn't talk about them at all there were so many burning questions so we didn't get to her chickens. so we didn't get to talk about her chickens her turkey her steers all of her dogs Uh, so ellen um i i know you have a dog because i mean well sometimes we hear it in the background because sometimes you guys hear my dogs in the background too totally fine um, do you have a pet that you desire that besides your dog? Um, there has been a campaign to get Teddy a friend. You know, Teddy oh. is adorable and sweet, but maybe he needs a friend. I don't know. So we'll see how that goes. Um, okay. On that front, how about how about you? How about your pets? Are you hoping for more chickens? I Are mean, for chickens. I would love to have chickens, quite honestly, but um, I have a terrier who thinks that um, all living things should maybe not be living, and we're actually afraid that she might kill all the chickens. So (laughs) while we still have our currently elderly dog, um, who is still very energetic, probably chickens are not in the card for us, but we would love chickens. We'd also love to have a cat, but same issue that we're afraid that she might not be so amenable to such things so for now happy with our family of our two puppies so um but even though we didn't talk about it with our next guest do know that she has a huge love of animals and uh, but we had to talk about far more important things so here we go welcome dr sunday Kreider to the podcast sunday thank you so much for joining us we've been we've been trying for a while to get you on i'm so excited <laughs> well thank you guys for having me i know it's been a little bit of back and forth trying to get all of our busy schedules together so we can do this <laughs> right but we made it work yes absolutely um so the first question is always my worst one where i'm like let's start at the beginning um where i mean i like it tell us about yourself (laughs) you enjoy long walks on the beach come on like this is a good get to know you question i mean how long did you have because there's just so much i could tell you about well um i i do i appreciate you guys having me on and just letting uh letting me share a little bit about my life and and it's fun to take a peek, I think, behind the curtains sometimes and, and see what all of us professionals look like in our real lives as well. So yeah. um, I am originally a small town Texas girl. So you might hear that come out every once in a while as I'm talking because I'm, again, a small town Texas girl. And it only takes about five minutes at the local Walmart before uh, that drawl starts coming out again. So um, if you hear me with my little Texas twang, that's that's why. Um, I grew up in a, on a farm uh, about an hour and a half south of Dallas. And uh, when I graduated high school, I could not get far enough away and had no intentions of ever coming back. But I spent um, a number of years in college and graduate school um, studying as a biologist and then getting my doctorate in cell biology and biochemistry with an emphasis in reproductive biology. And along that 
Tech. Did you do that in Did you do that in Texas? Though? I did. I was at Texas okay. Tech for my PhD. So um, oh, it's in Lubbock, okay. which was a long, yep. long way. I mean, it might have might as well have been outside the state as far as it my, was from home. My kiddo was born right on the other side of the border on the New Mexico side, right near Lubbock. Yeah, I know Lubbock I, very well. Yeah, We loved it up there. And I was in Lubbock for six years when I w- was working on my doctorate. And um, it was in protein biochemistry was really the emphasis, but my uh, coursework and research was uh, reproductive biology and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with that during that time. That's, I, what, that's what I was wondering. Did you have a plan when you're getting a PhD in that well, area? Did you, I, you think like, I'm going to run a surrogacy agency one No, day? that was not <laughs> on, the, on the horizon at that point. So I have to back up a little. Um, I, I got my master's degree first when I was down at St. Houston in Huntsville, Texas. And my master's degree was a uh, totally unrelated, studying tropical butterflies in Belize. And it was oh, actually a great excuse to, you know, spend some time in the rainforest and chase blue butterflies. Yes, around and, very clever. Um, yeah, it was. It was, you know, it was nice. We spent quite a bit of time down there. Um, but during that time, I was trying to figure out what I was going to be when I grow up. I think I still go through that some. Um, we all know, do. 30, 40 years <laughs> later. And um, I had the opportunity to visit an IVF lab. And it was an IVF lab in San Antonio. Dr. Rusty Poole uh, was the lab director there. And he um, had actually been a friend of my dad's in when they were in graduate school. So that was the connection. And uh, Dr. Martin was the MD there. And so I went to visit the lab and I saw sperm swimming under the microscope. And I was like, oh my God, that's that's the coolest thing ever. And then they showed me eggs and they showed me embryos. And I, it was that point that I was like, I want to be an embryologist. Like that's, I want to run a lab. That's what I want to do. And it made a lot of sense. Having grown up on the farm, um, I would never let an animal have a baby by itself. I would have to be there and like, let me help deliver the kittens. Let me help deliver the kittens. So I was always really fascinated with with um, reproductive biology and, and pregnancy and all of that. So it, it it did make total sense to what my uh, passions were, even you know at a younger age. So um, I looked for reproductive biology programs and found that Texas Tech actually had at the at their health sciences center. Um, they had one there. So um, I left. Sam Houston, which was a place with a lot of trees, and went to Lubbock, which is up in the plains of Texas, where there's no trees, and um, was up and there a, lot yeah. a lot of cows, a lot of cows, and it, it, you can smell them, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of cotton, and a lot of farmland up there. And so I spent that time doing my research, but also making connections with the reproductive biology world. So I would try to go to as many meetings. I, you know, I would go to ASRM or I would go to Society of Study for Reproduction just to make those connections. And by the time I finished my PhD, I started applying around for um, clinical programs that I could go into to become an embryologist. And so I, I think I finished when I was about 28, 29 years old, I had my doctorate and I thought, oh yeah, I, I'm big time. I'm in my twenties and I'm a doctor and blah, blah, blah. I just thought I was the coolest thing ever. And so I got a position at Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas as um, entry-level embryologist with Dr. Marius Minkies. And uh, Dr. Minkies was a lab director there. And so we moved to Dallas and I was so excited. I was newly married to my former husband, my kid's dad, and just ready to start being a grown-up. 
And so I walk in the lab thinking I'm going to be big time because I have a PhD after my name. And um, they they cut me down on that really quick. They're like, well, you can, oh, you can no. open a blood lab. So for the first few months, because to become an embryologist, you don't just hop in the embryo lab. Um, there is a long training program to be able to become a proficient embryologist. So my initial position in that facility was um, doing the hormone assays. So <laughs> they would bring me the, the blood tubes and I would get to spin them down and I would get to put the serum in the little machine and find out what somebody's estrogen level was or somebody's progesterone level was. And I thought, this is nothing like what I thought it would be. Important work was not what you thought you were going to be doing. Yeah. It was, but it knocked me off my high horse pretty quick. Um, so I spent some time doing that just a few months as part of their training program. And then they actually let me in the andrology lab. So that was a big step. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to get to play with gametes now. And, um, I learned the next part of the training program was, um, learning how to do sperm count, semen analyses. And then after a period of time, I became proficient in that because I mean, it, when I say training, you have a training sheet and you have to be tested that you know how to properly count sperm or properly identify um, a pin-shaped sperm head versus a round sperm head. So um, it's a pretty rigorous um, training program. And from there, I got to go into the IVF lab. And the IVF lab is, it's a magical place because you walk in and it's it's dark with very minimal lighting and everybody is gowned up and and quiet. And it's just a completely different world than being out in all the other labs. So um, I got to start observing in there for a while. And then finally they let me, you know, start messing around with, with some of the discarded eggs and things like that. So that's how the training program would go. And my, my mentor, Dr. Minkies, um, he was, and, and I found later that as a laboratory director, you are OCD, but at that time I'm like, man, he's really OCD. Um, but yeah. he would have me practice making the little embryo dishes. And if they weren't perfectly symmetrical, when I put the little drops in and the oil over it, then I would have to redo them. And, um, so I think I had, um, having somebody so structured and so, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see OCD about how to run a lab really instilled in me how to run a lab. So, um, I went on from Dallas. I was there for a couple of years. I became pregnant with my first child during that time and, um, actually got a position as, um, an, uh, supervisor, a lab supervisor up at New England Medical Center in Boston. So here's Texas girl, never lived outside of Texas. Yeah, that's going to be a big change. Moved to New England. And, um, you know, we get snow down here oh, maybe once or twice a year at most, and it's usually gone by noon. And I move up to Boston, a completely different culture than Texas and completely different weather. Yeah. And it started snowing in November and it didn't stop until May. And I didn't know what to think about it, but it was such an amazing experience of becoming a lab supervisor and working as an embryologist up there. And I knew my goal wasn't um, to only be an embryologist. I wanted to run a lab. I wanted to be the lab director and to be able to be a lab director 
in the business, you have to have at least four years of experience. And then it's basically like doing a residency. Um, you have your experience and then you have to take board exams to do that. So in, in the meantime, I'm getting that experience in that time. And so um, it got to the point where I could take all of my board exams and get qualified to be what we call a high complexity lab director, HCLD, um, by our um accrediting organization. So um, during that time, I kind of got tired of the snow and there's no daylight and it's really, really cold. And so we looked to uh, making the move back down to Texas and um, Methodist Hospital of Dallas was looking for a lab director to start their program from the ground up. And so um, I was hired to do that. And I was able to design the entire lab and then ran that program for a number of years um, as the lab director and embryologist. So that was an awesome move. I loved being in the lab. I loved um, seeing life at the very beginning, you know, these beautiful little embryos. And then people bring the babies back later and they show me. And I loved that side when they would bring the babies back. I mean, so many times we would send them away pregnant and then never see them again. And that was okay too. Um, But I loved the interaction with the patients when that got to happen. As a laboratory person, you don't always get to have that. Um, So uh, after that, I ended up uh, starting another lab in Phoenix, and I was the off-site lab director for that. And I was also able to be an off-site lab director for a sperm bank. So really getting my feet under me with the lab experience. So are you tra- uh, traveling a lot at this point? I was, and I had a young family. I was I was going to Phoenix probably, I don't know, maybe four times a year, but you, you're still kind of on call the whole time. So anytime they had a, I was sure. the escalation department. So anytime they had an issue, they would call me and then I would go out there and, and approve their manual. So I wasn't working as an embryologist anymore by this point. I mean, I was an embryologist for 15 years. So um, I kind of fast forwarded because, you know, that's a lot of years to, to talk about, <laughs> but um, becoming the lab director and and working with different kind of programs started opening the doors for what I became next. Um, so the travel was wearing on me, and um, being in the lab, I mean, I, I liked it, but I wasn't getting to do hands on anymore. So I started considering um, what what could I do to still stay in the industry, and um, but maybe. I was also having this pull to want to raise my family and be in the country again. I mean, you, you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. So um, I retired from my life as an embryologist and started um, a surrogacy company uh, with can a business I, can partner. I ask how old were you when you retired? When I retired, retired? Well, let's see. Probably <laughs> Let's see. I've been doing surrogacy probably, uh, it's been about 14 years ago, I guess. Nice. Yeah. It's like 20 years young. Yeah. I mean, I was like 40, 41 around that time. Um, just not being in the lab, but making the jump of, I'm going to start a a whole new thing. And I had done surrogacies, um, 
as, as a lab person, like I had worked from that side and helped coordinate it, there weren't a whole lot of agencies out there. And so I started thinking, you know, I really, at that time I thought egg donation and surrogacy. Um, and, and, um, I had a colleague that was interested, she was already, uh, had a egg donation agency and we had discussed this and she said, you know, I've been thinking about surrogacy too. And so we got together and started um, a surrogacy program together. And that was back in 2000, I say 2009, and it feels like it was only like three or four years ago, but <laughs> time flies, I, right? <laughs> you know, I, the 90s, that was just 10 years ago, right? That was, yeah. um, so we started that and, and, and had a fairly successful program. I had a different way that I wanted to, to do things. And so I ended up um, leaving that program in 2019 and going out on my own. So in the meantime, I was still doing some offsite director stuff. I still maintain my credentials um, to be a lab director. I actually do consulting now for FDA and uh, like helping with FDA audits for IVF labs too. So that's that's a whole other aspect of my life that I still want to keep my, my foot in that world a little bit. But um, my primary, the, the job that eats up all of my time, probably besides my teaching, is my surrogacy program. And, and you guys know, I mean, it, that's, it's, that's a thing that it's really hard to have boundaries. It's really hard to say this is a nine to five job because when you're working as a surrogacy program, it really becomes not your job, but your life. I don't know if that's a healthy thing or, or not, but um, it's it's a passion. It's all consuming. And sometimes we have to just kind of take a mental health break and step away for a weekend. But that's what landed me here. So I've been um, had my little company, the surrogacy consultant since 2019. Um, I thought I was going to step away. Um, I thought after my former agency, I, I got really burned out. We we had some a couple of losses um, I saw a need to do things differently and they, um, I, I didn't know how to go about it at that point, And I just really needed a break. And so I, I left and took about a year off. And, and then I had former clients reach out to me. It's like, why did you leave? And I had colleagues reaching out to me saying, Sunday, you can't, you have to be in this business. Like we can't do this. You need to, you need to be a part of it. So I actually had former clients and colleagues drag me, not quite kicking and screaming, um, but drag me back into starting the surrogacy consultant. So that was kind of the impetus for, for doing that. Um, and do you mind telling a few things about what makes you different or kind of what you saw in the industry that you wanted to improve upon? So one thing that I, I felt very strongly about, and I don't want to imply that um, by saying this, that things were not done correctly um, with the prior business. I just saw a, a need to do things differently. I felt very strongly about the ethics of what we do. Like that, that to me, like you do it right or you don't do it. And, um, and I, one of the things that I saw was that I noticed was, you know, when we have matches fall apart, um, why does that happen? Why does a match fall apart? And these parents come to us, with such heartache sometimes. I mean, they've been through cancer or they've been through hysterectomy or they've been through fetal loss or baby loss and years of infertility. And the last thing that they need once they think, oh my gosh, we finally got a surrogate. The last thing they need 
is for that journey to fall apart. So I started to take a look at where can we improve our process that um, that doesn't happen. And the way that we were doing it in our former agency is that um, we would pretty much do have, you know, have them apply, um, approve the application and then do a match meeting. And then we would get the records and then we would do the psych and then we would do the medical uh, screening. And yep. so, and, and this, you know, again, this is years and years ago. So you live and learn. And so I thought, you know, it's, it's bad when we get a surrogate to medical screening and then they don't approve her. Or right. it's bad if we get to psych and then they don't approve her. So one of the things that we started doing, and I, I think I see more and more agencies doing this now too, is um, as soon as we have somebody apply, the, that we gather their records first thing, and then we do psych. Like that's part of the application process is that yeah. we, we're going to have we do that too. So, yeah. But I think we're on the unusual side still a little bit on the psych one for sure. Well, I... I it has saved me a lot of sleepless nights and I agree. <laughs> we, um, we have had some decline, not a whole lot, but you know, mm -hmm. in the last four years, I've probably had five be declined and it may not be declined for, um, significant mental health reasons. It might be like this person has a whole lot on their plate right now. And this I, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so we have to do, I mean, not only do we have to do right by the parents, we need to do right by the surrogate too. And if it's yep. going to put an extra strain on her family or her relationship, this is not the right time to do this. Right. So um, that was an important part. And if I have to write the psychologist a check for a thousand dollars for um, a candidate that doesn't pass, I'm okay with that. Um, I would prefer yep. that not to happen, but you know what? I feel like, um, we're doing right by everybody and that's the cost of doing business. And so that that's an investment that we are making into these women um, as, as being candidates and making sure they've, they've got all the good um, mental health tools in their toolbox that they need to uh, go through a journey that may or may not be a stressful one. Um, and also saving parents that possibility of we may have to break a match because of this or this. Right. Um, it's the same with the medical records. Um, what we do now is, and most of the clinics have been amenable to this. Most of them have. We have a nurse on staff that she reviews them. But once we identify potential parents for um, a surrogate, we do we tell them about each other. We'll let them see their profiles, but we won't let them meet until their the parents' physician reviews those records. And because, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I mean, I'm, I'm a PhD. I'm not an MD. I, I always say, let me make a list. Of you are one, but I'm right. not an MD. And so whenever I talk to my parents, I say, okay, here's what I'm not. I'm not an attorney. So I'm not going to like, we totally step back during legal because mm -hmm. I don't want to uh, skew one side or the other in that process. I'm not a physician. And so even though we can review the records, even though I have a nurse, um, we are not making clinical decisions, and nor can we operate in that capacity. So um, especially with the clinics that we have a good relationship with, what we'll do is we'll reach out and say, hey, um, we have a potential candidate for this intended mom. Do you mind reviewing these records for us to give us a thumbs up before we move any further? And, you know, sometimes it'll take them a day and sometimes it'll take them a month. But usually um, they'll say, yes, we'll do that because they appreciate what we're trying to do. 
So that all that's part of the, the application and matching process. So for our surrogates, it may take, you know, a good six weeks to get the, and I know that seems slow when, when they hop in, they're so excited and they just want everything to happen quickly. Um, but it takes a bit and, and the parents are the same way, you know, they apply and they want to be matched quickly, but they have to understand that just like me learning how to handle embryos, you don't just jump right in with the match. There, there is such a process and so much thought that goes into bringing these parties together. And I, you know, since we started doing things in that way, I'm trying to think, I mean, the only time we've had a match break was when a surrogate became pregnant accidentally on her own. And all of those other things have fallen by the wayside because we've been able to improve our process in a way that hopefully by the time we get to the match meeting, it's almost a formality. You know, it's like we've, we've done our diligence as best we can um, with the records review and with the psych and we're looking at their personalities and thinking, are they going to be a good match? And even we also have, and, and Jennifer, you probably do the same. We have the, what we call our compensation and contract worksheet that mm-hmm. is, it's the package, you know, it's the compensation yep, yep. package, but also, um, matching. Not, it's not legally binding, but it it's definitely not, lays out, it lays out everybody's understanding yes. in advance. Yep. And we, t- we say that we tell them yep. that, um, and we have the surrogate complete that. So when the parents um, see the surrogate's profile, they also see those compensation and contract yep. requests. I'm over here just like, people can't see me, but I'm just like, everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, we do yeah. that. Yep. I'm just yeah. like nodding along with you. I'm like, yep. Absolutely. <laughs> like to me as a process person, as a scientist, and yep. I think that's where the training comes in. Like um, I process map everything. It drives my fiance nuts because we're building a house. I'm like, okay, but it could be this or this and it could be this or this. And he's like, no, just, just let go of some do of that, you, please. Do you have a process map for your wedding? So, um, I had a process map for my divorce. I, uh, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> uh, we haven't even planned the wedding yet because this has been such right. a busy seat. We might just end up when we go to Vegas, like pop into a chapel and, and make it happen. Oh, I'll be in Vegas. So yeah. I'm going to be following yeah. you around, seeing if you're that's going to right. a chapel. <laughs> Everyone's going to be stalking me. Did they do it? Did they do it? Yeah. So I think that's, um, it, when it comes to, to trying to do again, let's, we, we are either going to do it the right way or we're not going to do it. Even if it means writing a check to the psychologist because the candidate didn't pass the, the psychosocial or, or whatever that looks like, because, um, the stakes are so high for these families. They're so, so high. And I don't want to get to a point of this match after this parent has had so much grief and the surrogate has had so much excitement. And then we have to say, we need to go separate ways or this isn't going to work. Or she showed up with chlamydia. I mean, that's another thing we, we do um, STD screening as a part of our um, application process as well. And drug screening, like we don't want any surprises. And so the whole journey, we really have to look at as a terms of risk mitigation. And, you know, again, that comes from my lab director experience and, and having run a lab and when you're handling human embryos and you have to worst case scenario, everything, um, so that your process will meet anything that could happen. 
and it, you know, if something comes up, we've got a protocol for that. We've got a process. It's like writing the gestational agreement. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the guide for if something goes wrong, let's go back and look what the agreement says. So, um, speaking of which, one burning question I want to ask that I get from a lot of non Texans and especially attorneys is I, I had someone yesterday ask me, are they still doing surrogacy in Texas with SB8 and the heartbeat law? Yeah. What is that looking like? That has been the burning question. So, yeah. you know, uh, last summer, um, there was a big knee jerk reaction. I, I think it was warranted. I mean, it, this has not been a good thing for women's health. Um, SB8 is the Texas heartbeat bill um, that has, um, and it's, if you've read the bill, it's, 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 there's so many things that are inaccurate in that bill. For instance, they state um, that life begins when the sperm binds the zona pellucida. And I'm like, no, no, that's so inaccurate. That's not true. And, um, you know, they didn't ask me. Um, I don't know what reproductive biologist they spoke to when they when they wrote that law. I don't know if that's grounds for me to try to go in and sue them. But um, <laughs> um, the fear was multifactorial when, um, that came out, um, for me, it's like, I have to choose my battles and, um, I, I couldn't focus more on, this is an unwanted pregnancy side of it. Um, my focus was on what does this mean for IVF embryos? What is this for all those that are in cryo storage? What if an embryologist drops a dish of embryos? I mean, obviously that's a liability, but is it going to be murder? Um, what does this mean for surrogacy? And so, um, Historically, in our surrogacy contracts, we would see mention about, um, you know, the parents being able to make that decision for termination or and certainly in the interview process, we and we still do. We talk a great deal to both the surrogates and the parents of, you know, should there be something um, wrong with the baby? If there's a mention of this from the physician, you know, are you comfortable with allowing uh, parents making that decision? And with the surrogates, historically, it's been, you know, there's a whole spectrum of answers of it's not my baby. So I'm going to let them make that choice, regardless of how I feel personally about it, all the way to I'm not comfortable with termination for any reason. And then in between where we may say, you know, if it's for life threatening um, or quality of life issues, then I would be comfortable. But if it was for something like Down syndrome, then I wouldn't. But that's such an important conversation um, sometimes multiple conversations to really tease out how everybody feels about that. And we honor and respect wherever someone is on that spectrum, both parties. The important thing is that they are on the same page. So, you know, we will have no term parents. What we that the 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 folks that we consider would not have a termination for any reason. We would call those our no term uh, mm-hmm. uh, parents or no term surrogates. So then, okay. So last summer happens and now uh, terminations are illegal in Texas. What happened? Um, there was a big uproar. I know some agencies have completely pulled out of Texas. Um, we decided to push through. And, and we decided to push through for a couple of reasons. Um, we need to have this here. Texas laws in, in terms of surrogacy are, are good laws. And um, in all my years of doing IVF, I've not had 
and this is, I knock on wood when I say this, I've not had a patient. I was thinking just that knock on wood before you say anything. Please, We've had a couple of close calls and I'm happy to speak very vaguely to that too, but, um, we haven't had it. So the point is, it's not going to happen. The, the point is, it's a very, very rare occurrence that it would happen. And um, so I, I talked with some of our attorneys here in Texas, and um, the best way to, to um, be able to counsel our patients for that. So we still have the conversation. We do. Um, I think that's an important thing. We still need to be sure that people are on the same page. But we're very careful about how we discuss things because we don't have privilege like an attorney has privilege or a doctor has privilege that they could um, privately hold information for for their clients. So we would never want to put anyone at risk. And I Um, worry that even for you, do you worry that just facilitating that conversation like, are you concerned someone will say you're able well, that, and abetting? Or I don't know. Well, it's just, that's it's a scary that's position. The fear. That's the fear. So in the law, it does say aiding and abetting, but it doesn't outline what that means. And so um, I think for some, some um, jurisdictions in Texas, they have said, you know, yes, it may be illegal, but this is not going to be a priority for us to prosecute. So there's that. Um, I, but I know that there's I mean, that's uh, only only so much comfort, right? I know, and I know, right? People can and there's a suit. There's a couple of suits um, pending right now. They're not against individuals, um, but they are against um, these nonprofits that are helping p- to fund for people to travel. So there's a lot of precedent that has not been set yet, and we don't know what that even looks like. So would aiding and abetting be me just talking to people about how they feel about termination? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I think there's an, when I've talked to, you know, Texas is a conservative state in the rural areas, not, not so much in the cities. Um, And I've got lots of conservative people in my life. I'm probably a middle of the road person when it comes down to all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people don't understand the nature of the law. I mean, even when I was talking to my little 77 year old, sweet little old daddy about it, and he's conservative as the day is long and, and talking to him about why the law was so upsetting. And I said, it doesn't even have any, um, like even in the case of rape or incest or any of that, there's no exclusions. Even if it's a severe issue with the baby, there's no exclusions. He's like, no, that's not right. And I said, Yes, it is. There are no exclusions for this. So he had no understanding how um, how strict this law was. And I think most people don't. Like, I think they look at it as we're saving the babies, we're saving the babies. And, and they don't understand, but is putting women at risk. This isn't necessarily even, like, again, I'm choosing my battles. I'm not, I, I, I could go a whole other route if we were talking about unplanned pregnancies, but even from the, just the medical side of somebody carrying an anencephalic baby with a heartbeat, it's going to have to carry the baby to term. And for for listeners, what does that term mean? So an anencephaly is a condition in which the upper part of the skull and brain don't form. 
So the babies can survive the pregnancy. They can survive birth, but they are born with very rudimentary function and usually die soon after, soon after, because there's no brain. It's just made, you know, it depends on the severity of it, but there's no, there's brainstem. So you might have breathing and heartbeat, but there's no brain. And so, you know, some people, and here's, here's where it comes down to choice. Some people may choose to carry the baby to term and that's okay. That is okay for them. And some people may find that more heartbreaking to, to do that and may choose to terminate. And again, it's a matter of choice. So um, I'll share a case with you, but I, I want to be as vague as I can about it just to protect the, sure. the parties involved. Absolutely. Um, we had a case and the surrogate was actually in another state and she had, but the parents were in Texas and this was right after Dobbs, right after Dobbs decision. And she had premature rupture of membranes, PROM, at 18 weeks. Now, this can be a fatal um, situation for the, the fetus. Um, what happens when you have PROM is that the amniotic fluid can leak completely out. And the baby has to have amniotic fluid to develop its lungs normally. So with many PROM uh, cases, the lungs will will atrophy or they, they won't expand and the baby will be born unable to breathe. So it, it's it's a sad situation. Um, on the on the pregnancy side, on the mother or the surrogate side, now you have a sterile space that has opened up and is no longer sterile. So you are at risk for systemic infection and sept, uh, septicemia. So PROM can be a very dangerous situation to both the fetus and the woman carrying it, whether it's the surrogate or the mother. So um, this was probably in July, so just after Dobbs, and I'm having to have a conversation with the parents now. And I'm having to tell them, don't write me anything. Mm -hmm. I'm having to tell them, don't talk to your friends and family about this. Because we didn't know. Remember, this is Whoa. right after. So this is knee-jerk. And so these parents are having to go through this grieving process because they're in Texas and we don't know how the law applies because there's no precedent. Like, can could, could they be considered aiding and abetting if they're helping their surrogate in a different state go through a termination if that's what they chose to do. And it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to tell them, don't talk to your parents. Don't talk to your, you know, or yeah, I wasn't telling them straight up not to talk to them, but to consider who they're visiting with, because you just don't know who's going to turn somebody in. The way the law is set up is that any citizen can turn another citizen in and get a $10,000 for a $10,000 suit. So a bounty, basically, and in, in a lot of people's opinion. So um, the first decision for, I mean, the first decision they made is like, let's, let's just, let's talk to the surrogate. You know, certainly the surrogate was looped in on all this as well. Um, and the surrogate was like, let's, let's wait and see. Like, if, if you don't, if you want to see how things are going, let's just wait and see. But she's, now she's putting herself at risk too. So um, it was a day by day thing. 
and and us talking to the the parents and us talking to the surrogates and being that support system because they're afraid to talk to anybody. And um, you know the the baby was the the physicians would tell the surrogate you know as long as you're not running a fever as long as we look like we're not having an infection that we can push forward if everybody's on page with on the same page with that. Yeah. And the parents said, okay, but they're at the same time, they're also looking at what if the baby's born a micro preemie and looking at the lifetime care for that. And, you know, they're in their forties. We were just, Jennifer and I were just talking about being older moms <laughs> right. and, looking, you know, and looking at what that looks like for them. And if the baby is born with issues, you know, who's going to care for the baby. And, and I find that to be a common thread with all parents when they're considering even the possibility of termination, even we're having those early discussions before there's ever even a baby in existence. Like if there's something born with medical, severe medical issues with a baby, who's going to care for them if they're a little bit older parents. So we, we went through all of that exercise and um, we got to about 22 weeks and the state that the surrogate was in would allow termination up to 20, 23 or 24, I think. And so we're kind of on a time crunch too about, is this going to happen? None of us felt good about this. None of us felt good about the possibility of a later uh, abortion. Like it was, it was such a sick feeling to have to go through all of this and to think about this. And this was the first time I had, had um, been presented with the possibility of doing a later term abortion. And I can tell you it is <laughs> nobody feels good about having to consider that. And um, we got to about 23 weeks and she spiked the fever. And um, I, yeah, so they admitted her to the hospital. They put her on IV antibiotics. And right at this point, the parents said, you know, we've made it this far. If she's in danger, absolutely. But if, if the circuit's like, no, I want to push through. I want to push through. And they're like, okay. So, it, you know, they were in agreement. They were all on the same page. And I think that's the biggest thing. And she made it to 24 weeks even, and they delivered. Wow. So now, okay, now we have 24-week baby. And baby goes into NICU. I mean, that's, a, you know, early, early, early. Yeah. Now, yeah. I do want to fast forward to now. Baby spent 100 days in NICU, and baby is home oh. and doing well. And it's it, it was a, a very miraculous thing. But I think what I want to really emphasize is that they had the choice and they, I mean, and these were conservative church going folks. So these are not people that would have ever instantly jumped to the possibility of termination or had, you know, early on, they probably wouldn't have, have considered it. But when they looked at the potential ramifications of what could have happened to the baby. That was certainly on the table for them. Like they didn't want their baby to suffer. They didn't want the surrogate to die. So we went, luckily everything worked out and they had that choice and they were very appreciative of being able to have that choice. But us having to say, be careful who you talk to, you know, that, that was horrible. That was horrible that these people couldn't go through this stressful time and a potentially grieving process without, being able to talk to their friends and family about it. So that's yeah. my soapbox on that. So that's been our experience with it. So now what yeah. we do is, is that we do have the conversations in the beginning 
Um, the contracts are now um, pretty um, lacking on termination discussion. And I think that that is, is a protective mechanism for everybody involved because we don't know the you know we don't know what the precedent is going to be if somebody has to get a termination we know that they can't go after the surrogate that that is written in the law they can't go after the pregnant woman but are they going to go after the parents is that aiding and abetting are they going to go after the uber driver who drives her to the airport are they going to go after the pilot that flies her like who are they going to go after and i think it's written vaguely on purpose because they can cherry pick who they want to try to go after it's just at what point is it going to show up in court that this happened. And I don't know that anybody truly wants to be the person prosecuting um, a case where you're going after parents that have had to terminate a child that had anencephaly. Like, who wants to be that person? So um, I thought long and hard about it. I thought, do we want to stop? And, And I even thought about, you know, even being in Texas, me solely being in Texas and working with people out of state. Does that put me at risk for that? And I just felt strong enough about the whole thing that we need this. We need to be able to serve our parents in Texas. We need to be able to have surrogates in Texas. I need to be in Texas because that's where my cows and chickens and horses and all of that are. So that was, that was the thought process of pushing through. And I think, you know, this is all still very young and very new, So I don't know what that looks like six months from now or a year from now, or as we start to see potential lawsuits come through the courts. But what I see right now is that the only people that have been sued have been um, a a physician that was sued by a couple of -of out-of-state attorneys um, to make a point, I think. And I think those, that case was actually dropped. And then the current suit that is against these two, um, funds, uh, nonprofits that are helping to fund travel. And I don't know where that is going to go. Um, I don't know. I'm hoping before the ABA meeting in Las Vegas that maybe there'll be some more news on that, but that's really kind of the state of things. And to be fair, even before SB8 and in other states, those termination provisions in a contract already have such legal right i mean who's going to force issues right exactly right yeah so it was i mean we write it down and we put it in the contract but at the end of the day no judge in any state i don't care how conservative or liberal it is um no judge is going to force a woman to have a termination so it really does become such and this gets back to the matching process Mm -hmm. you have to have such a level of trust for each other in those parties that everybody's going to be as agreeable as we can to whatever happens during the course of the the surrogacy process. Uh, Switching gears with what time we have left, um, the fact that you're also doing FDA work and um, looking into laboratories that they're following protocols, I feel like you're a good person to ask, like, these mix-up cases that happen, I totally, Ooh, yeah. totally a shift from surrogacy, right? But <laughs> we see, right? We see these cases where uh, doctors transfer the wrong embryo, and there was like this oh crazy one out of New York where you know this woman from New York went to a clinic in California, and they transferred 
what she thought. Two wrong embryos, right? And then she was pregnant with twins and she gave birth. And it turns out neither were hers and they weren't even related to each other. It was just so terrifying. Um, So hopefully when you inspect laboratories, you have these protocols that stop that. But how do they even happen in the first place? How did that happen? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know because let me tell you, when I was an embryologist, I used to have embryology dreams. And I would dream that I would take the embryos home in my purse and I would put them on the bed. And I was so afraid they were going to spill on the floor. Like there's such a level of stress that comes along with being an embryologist. And so, um, because of my work in the lab, I, I had this fear. I, I had that fear. Like that's being an embryologist is, is exhausting. If you're a good embryologist, because you live with this mental fear of, what if I mix up the wrong sperm? What if I mix up the wrong eggs? So you have protocols hopefully in place. Like I never handled more- that OCD thing, right? <laughs> you never handle more than one, one sperm sample at a time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever process sperm samples um, more than once. I always had several steps where I would, I, I was so anal retentive and I am not an anal retentive person at all. Um, you should see my laundry piles right now. I mean, they're all over the place, but in the lab I was because, you know, I didn't want that to happen and it, I wouldn't sleep at night for fear of these things happening. So I would double check labels every step of the way. And I had signature lines every step of the way that this label matched this label and this label matched this label. And um, even when it came down to putting the embryos back and what I would do is again, never, you know, you never have more than one patient's embryos out of the incubator at the same time. And everybody has their own shelf in the incubator. And you, but what I would do even at embryo transfer is that I would take the, we had a label on the lid of the dish and I would take that to the parent and say, this is the dish that the embryos came out of and here's your label on the lid. And then I would give that to the parents as a little keepsake. But um, I lived in fear of that happening. And I think that fear is what keeps you from letting it happen. I think when you become sloppy and you become complacent, um, that's when mix-ups happen. And it's really hard as somebody like me to be able to turn over work to somebody else because are they going to do it with the same level of OCD-ness um, that I had? And so I would, when I was lab director, I would do all of the embryology work myself as well. When I became off-site director, I had to step back from that. I had to trust, again, trust, right? I had to trust that they were going to do it the right way, but I wrote all of the protocols and I wrote all the forms and designed the database in a way that you're going to do, you know, have two person verification at every single step to make sure that that doesn't happen. I think so. So for patients, should they mm-hmm. ask to see the OCD diagnosis for the lab yes. director? Is that, <laughs> you know, what do we, what do patients do was, to ensure a good lab? The, the patients, I think for one thing, they, ha- they don't get to have a relationship with the embryologist, which um, typically, I mean, they might get a call from the embryologist saying, you have six embryos um, and this many fertilized. And that might be the extent of interaction that a patient gets to have. Um, I'm the person that I've got to research something for like two years before I'll make the decision on anything. So as, from a patient standpoint, research your facility. 
research your lab, look at their pregnancy rates, not what they have on their website, but what they have in the CDC or SART data. Um, look on the FDA site to see um, if they've had any FDA citations. Those are public. Um, if you go... Uh, oh, tell us more about that. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, I feel like a squirrel. I'm a, such a tangential thinker. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the FDA, how is that the Food and Drug Administration? How does it have anything to do with IVF labs? Well, the FDA has oversight of everything donor. So whether it's donor blood or donor tissues or donor organs, that also includes donor sperm and donor eggs and donor embryos. So any facility that handles those has to be registered with the FDA. And by be, being registered with the FDA, that opens you up to being inspected by the FDA. And you have there's very, very particular protocols about how you handle donor eggs and donor sperm and donor embryos and how you have to screen and test donors and how you have to label the tissues. There's very particular labeling and who can even be a donor. So, um, there's there's a lot of regulations that go along with that. When the FDA comes in, they don't announce their inspections at all. They just roll up to the office and flash their badge and say, we're here to check out your lab. So Is that you? Is that you with the glasses? No, so I don't work no. for the FDA. I wish. That would be so cool. I'm gonna I might have a fake one made just to um, <laughs> scare uh, so people. What, what we do is that we review their protocols to see that they're because the FDA would go through your protocols. We basically do a mock of what the FDA FDA would do. So I go through protocols and um, I have suggestions like you need to add this here or, you know, maybe take this out or make this more clear. And um, then we can do chart audits to make sure that they have all the proper labeling in there. And um, then we can even do mock inspections for the facility, like pretend like we're FDA agents with our little plastic fake badge. And so we can ensure that their staff knows how to handle an FDA inspection as well. Cause it's, I tell you what, when you're in the middle of an embryo freeze and your secretary walks in and says, Oh, the FDA is here. Um, and you walk out and there's two women in black suits with a badge on their belt. And you're like, Oh my gosh, I've got to finish this freeze. And then, you know, instantly you're going to, is everything in order? Because if they find deficiencies, if it's not an easily correctable, like sometimes if it's just a little thing, like you need to change the wording here, that's, that's an easy fix. If it is something that puts patients at risk for communicable disease, because that's what it comes down to, then you can be sanctioned. And that could be a fine. That could be, um, certainly a public letter on the public website of, and this happened to a, a big lab on the West coast just very recently, um, where the medical director's name is on it. And this is exactly what we found and it's all there to, to see. So I would definitely suggest that people do their due diligence on any lab that they use. Can I ask an FDA question that I get a lot and I feel sure. like I don't fully understand. So when, and sorry, we are totally on tangents on this. Anytime someone needs to use a donor there is this quarantine period. So this especially mm -hmm. comes months, up. The six month hold. Yeah, yep. when people are using a friend or a known donor, and then yep. they're often surprised to hear like, wait, I have to wait six months. Um, but then some clinics will tell them, no, you don't have to wait six months. Can you explain that? Sure. So the quarantine period is going to 
The only requirement of the FDA for quarantine is for anonymous donor sperm. So the reason that they do this is that they'll have an anonymous donor come in and donate sperm, um, and they'll do all the communicable disease testing at that time, and then they put it in quarantine for six months, and then they'll have the donor retested. And the reason that they do that is, like, say he had HIV. Well, if, if he had just contracted it maybe a month prior, he may not be positive on that initial test, but he should do something called seroconvert. He sh- that means that their serum will start to show um, the antibodies to it within that six month period. So um, what would happen is when he went in for his subsequent blood test six months later and it comes up positive, then they know that all of that sample that was in quarantine would need to be destroyed because he, and he's not an eligible donor. Um, When it comes to a known donor, um, a known donor can be positive for a communicable disease and still donate. Now, here comes the labeling requirements. For an anonymous donor, they're going to be either eligible or ineligible. If they're ineligible, they cannot donate. For a directed or known donor, you also have eligible and ineligible, but even an ineligible donor can still donate. Oh, that's confusing. It is. It is. I almost have to feel like I have to draw a chart out. So let's say that, um, and I'll I'll speak to this uh, from the surrogacy side. Um, Occasionally, so anything a surrogate receives is going to be donor. So the, the mom or the egg donor would need to go through the communicable disease testing. The sperm donor would need to go, or the dad would need to go through communicable disease testing. Um, because of the nature of surrogacy, it is considered a known donation. We know the source. They know the source that it's coming from. So occasionally we will have couples where one of them may be um, hep B positive or HIV positive. And, um, but they may have zero viral load, which means if you test their serum, there's no virus detected. But if you text, test for the um, genetic material, you may find that there. But that just means they don't, they don't have an active virus present. So the risk of transmission is very, very low. And then there's ways to process that sperm um, to reduce it even further. Now, the thing is, of course, all that would have to be disclosed to the surrogate and she would have to um, be okay with any risk. If it's something like hepatitis B, then um, she could also be vaccinated for that to also add that level. Um, and it's, it's, it's all about education. If, if you go into it and like, oh my gosh, they've got HIV and leave it at that, um, that is a scary thing. But if you talk to them about, here's the science of it, and they'll, they'll see that the risks are, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's improbable that they would contract HIV from embryos resulting from sure. this donor sperm. You know, you start to back up right. and like, it's, it's just about impossible that that would happen. Um, so in that case, it doesn't have to be quarantined. Now, some labs as their own policy, some programs will require quarantine of known donor sperm as well. So I think Jennifer, that's what you're seeing. Yeah. Or I don't know if that was Ellen or Jennifer that asked that. But, um, so when you see known donor sperm with a quarantine requirement, that is not an FDA requirement per se. That is a clinic requirement, just probably having the same protocol 
for each type of sperm donor that they would sure. have. That makes sense. Yep. That's helpful. Um, we are so grateful for you for sharing so much of your expertise and your knowledge. And I feel like we could have a 20 hour long podcast. But we just want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing all of this with us and for all that you do. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me today. Thank you so much to Dr. Sunday Kreider for um, tolerating us and everything. I was going to say, she was so much fun. And I got to talk to her afterwards, too. Just a really fun human being. So we're so thankful. Yeah. So thank you to Sunday. Thank you to all of you who come. Thank you for those of you who have gone to iTunes and selected those those stars, however many you think are appropriate. Um, Also to those who call 303-997-1903. It really does make our day a little bit brighter whenever we hear from people. Uh, Thank you to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, to Melissa. And of course, as always, thank you to all of you for showing up and uh, listening to us and tolerating our ridiculous humor. Thank you. (laughs) 